I do feel like there's a culture shift. And part of it is us um, finally dislodging and really tearing down this idea that we should be pain-free, always active um, machines that you know, experience no disability, no discomfort, are always happy and always positive, you know, sort of the myths of um, capitalism that posit that there's some sort of ideal way of being that's unachievable for absolutely anyone. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about personal and collective transformation. Today, I am so excited to be in conversation with the writer and meditation teacher, Sebene Selassie. Sebene is a self-described nerdy, black, immigrant, tomboy, weirdo. That's from the first edition cover of her wonderful book, You Belong, A Call for Connection, which was published in 2020, and it explores spirituality and humanity through the lens of belonging. Sebene is a sought-after meditation instructor who's been teaching retreats and classes for over a dozen years. She's also one of the core meditation teachers on the excellent 10% Happier app. She is also a four-time cancer survivor who has openly and generously discussed her health challenges in her writing and in her teaching. Previously, Sebene worked for over 20 years with children and families at various nonprofits all over the world from the Tenderloin in San Francisco to refugee camps in Guinea, West Africa. She is also a trained practitioner of indigenous focusing-oriented therapy and an avid student of astrology, numerology, and tarot. So it makes sense that she has a fantastic newsletter that is synced up with the moon cycles. I highly recommend it, and you can subscribe to it on her website at sevenaselassie.com. Sevenay is also a friend and a really excellent conversation partner, who is always ready to wade into the deep end, which honestly is pretty much where I always want to be. In this conversation, we talk about coming home to the body and what it means to be present with ourselves, whether we're in good health or in chronic pain. We also discuss the power of connecting to the ancestral knowing that lives in our bodies, about presenting yourself with an undefended heart, and about the profound shifts that are unfolding within the collective consciousness. Before we start, I want to apologize for some light background noise that crops up periodically during the show. My neighbor chose our interview slot to cut down and mulch some trees, and Sebene was speaking from her apartment in Brooklyn with sounds from the street percolating up. All right, let's dive in. Sebene Selassie, welcome back to Hurry Slowly. Oh, thanks for having me back, Jocelyn. So as you may or may not have noticed, I did a slight rebrand of Hurry Slowly for this new season as I grow and my interests expand. And now I'm describing it as a podcast about personal and collective transformation. So I'd like to start there. How would you define transformation? What do you think it is and what do you think it's not? Oh, wow. I love you. You're diving right deep in. <laughs> Coming um, in hot. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I love I love that you connect that to your brand transformation too, because um, that may seem like something. Um, uh, I live in Brooklyn, by the way, everyone, so you might hear noises in the background. Um, yeah, you know, it might feel superficial or uh, surface, but um, it's so powerful. Like I'm looking at. Um, your colors right now mm. and just the the change to these really just beautiful, vibrant tones um, speaks to me of some kind of transformation that's going on for you and the work that you put out in the world. So when you first asked the question, I was thinking of self-transformation, but because you um, framed it within this um, transformation of your podcast, it, it really, to me, speaks to Kind of just the frequency of transformation on all these different levels um, that can happen. So it can be through, you know, color and uh, texture and sound and movement and um, and then I would say for myself, I I speak a lot and I sort of explore transformation very much in terms of my own sort of inner landscape and what's shifting and and. Um, 
changing for me. And, um, I think that, uh, it's, it's been such a powerful process for me to go with transformation. So I get, I, maybe I'll start with the negative as you were saying, you know, mm-hmm. what it's not, what it's not in my experience is, um, resistance to change, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, could, could look like, um, we're evolving because we're making maybe some, um, adjustments in our life. Um, I'll, I'll take health transformations for, as an example, for me, you know, I've, I've been through now many rounds of cancer, including all sorts of treatment, both allopathic and holistic and alternative. And, um, there are some changes that I've made uh, to address some of the health challenges I'm experiencing. But sometimes the deeper transformation is really simply allowing what's happening mm. um, and uh, not fighting it. So that that's really hard when you're going through something as um, radical as a stage four cancer diagnosis, or for someone else, it might be a chronic illness that you're experiencing. And so transformation is really allowing for me, um, the processes that are sort of naturally occurring in your life. So whatever difficulties and challenges, but also wonderful beautiful transformations that are happening. Um, and, and so sometimes it can look like a not doing, like I think of transformation or maybe we think generally of transformation as like active change, Mm -hmm. but sometimes the transformation is in accepting and allowing what's happening. And that brings a change that we couldn't have imagined. I think that's exactly what I needed to hear right now. Thank you. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I feel like that that answer was kind of all over the place, but I think that kind of speaks to the fact that transformation is often not what we think it's going to be. Absolutely. And I think it also speaks to the fact that it's messy and ugly and as you say, kind of unpredictable, right? We kind of, it's it's very much in the cultural lexicon now, I think is something that we glorify and as you say, feel like we could sort of proactively do and maybe in the doing kind of control, you know, I'm going to transform from this into this and kind of go out and pursue that. Uh, But I think it works quite differently than that. Yeah, it can, right? So I think that, um, yeah, as you were saying that, what came to mind right away was spontaneous remissions which I'm quite Hmm. interested in as someone who's dealt with cancer, that this phenomena that the medical um, community really can't explain, so tends to ignore, but is a fact. You know, there are spontaneous remissions from cancer Hmm. and there's a not doing in that that leads to a profound transformation and there's a mystery behind it. And so transformation can be so many things. Like it can be an act of doing, like you changing your your brand, your logo, your colors, making an active choice and decisions that um, speak to the deeper transformations that you're going through with your work in the world. And it can also be sort of a letting go and allowing a process that's out of our hands to occur too. So um, yeah, it, it's it's really honoring that sometimes it can be messy. Sometimes it can be spontaneous. Um, sometimes it can be really, uh, intentional and, um, uh, you know, an active process we engage in, but it's, it's, um, definitely not about a gripping type of control. <laughs> this we know. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> So you've been on the show a number of times at this point, and the theme that I'm exploring this season is this idea of coming home and all of the different ways, both physical and metaphysical, that we can interpret that idea. And I wanted to start the season in conversation with you because I think so much of your work and your thinking kind of touches into this metaphor of home on a lot of different levels. And... I'd like to start today with the idea of coming home to the body, what that can mean, what it looks like, what it feels like. But before we get into that, I feel like it would be good to give the folks listening um, a little more context. You started to 
allude to it a little bit, but you've been on a very physical journey over the past 18 months or so. Could you share a little bit about that recent experience and what you've been dealing with? Yeah. So uh, I have um, stage four metastatic breast cancer, which I've had for many years now. I was first diagnosed with stage three cancer when I was 34 and 50. I'll be 52 next week. Um, so it's you know many years of dealing with late stage cancer, um, but I had been um, sort of cancer free and stable um, since 2015. Uh, and then last year, so it's 2022 now, but in uh, the spring of 2021, I started experiencing some pretty intense pain in my hip and uh, my left hip. And it was misdiagnosed for quite a while um, and was discovered later in the summer to be very extensive metastasis of the cancer into bone Um both uh, in my hip, but all over my body. I had a fluid-filled collapsed left lung. I had um, metastasis to many lymph nodes. It was a hot mess, and I was quite, quite sick. And um, there was a very rapid intervention of radiation and um, surgeries to help um, you know, deal with sort of the, the most acute symptoms, but there was not much else sort of possible in terms of uh, other treatments like chemo or um, drugs. There were just very few interventions they could offer. And somewhat miraculously, I believe, and to the um, curiosity, let's say, of my my oncologists, um, I've had uh, almost a full recovery um, and doing remarkably well just uh, you know a little over a year later. So a lot of, um, over the years, but especially last year, a lot of work with the body, um, with a very extreme pain, um, with, uh, immobility and disability, uh, with just a lot of limitations on my, uh, capacities, my physical capacities. Mm. Thank you for sharing all of that. So how do you reconcile the idea of coming home to the body when it feels like, in some sense, I'm going to use some perhaps problematic oppositional language here. How do you reconcile coming home to the body when it feels like the body is actively thwarting you or when you're dealing with chronic pain whose origins may be mysterious? Yes. I, you know, I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of us that are living with challenges in the body. And there may be some folks out there who have not. You know, I I had a teacher many years ago who was in her um, late 60s, early 70s at the time. And she, she really had never had more than sort of passing headaches and flus and stomach aches and um, had never broken a bone, had never been terribly ill in any way. And um, there, there are some people who have been blessed with that. And I say blessed with a little bit of a <laughs> questioning tone because, um, uh, you know, I remember one time she experienced something very minor happening for her in my, in my estimation. And it was the biggest challenge, this sort of um, pain she was having in her hand at the time. And it was such a lesson to me in, um, you know, what we, we think are blessings and um, are not in, in a, a bigger picture sense. And now I don't wish cancer on anyone. I don't um, wish hardships um, to, you know, even those who I, I have issues with <laughs> or challenges with. You know, it's, it's not something um, that we want to draw into our lives. And um, it happens. We live in these imperfect bodies that come with their own challenges. We each have our own, let's say, karmic trajectories in terms of what we've inherited physically, emotionally, psychologically from our own ancestries, and then what um, may be the product of environmental factors around us. And and I do believe that we also carry things through consciousness from past lives and from um, realms that we are just barely understanding as moderns, um, but have been understood by ancients for, for a long time, that there are 
a myriad of causes and conditions for why some of us get sick and others don't and why we experience these things. So I just want to preface that, that it's, um, you know, it's, it's a very different experience for different people and still understanding sort of all the mysterious reasons why we might get sick that, um, getting sick or experiencing pain or experiencing health challenges can feel like punishment, you know, can feel like, um, um, some kind of mistake that we, we have been sort of charged with or like relegated to this realm of the ill, um, while others have not. And, um, there's a real, again, you know, talking about acceptance and allowing, I think there's a real power in, as the very first step, just accepting that this is how it is. You know, the, the resistance to how it is brings so much more suffering there's that modern kind of med- meditation equation that pain times resistance equals suffering. So the suffering is not really from the pain. Pain is pain. It can be hard. It can be challenging. But the real suffering, you know, the the wallowing, the um, the the woe is me that comes. And not to say it's wrong, but it's only perpetuated by our resistance to just accepting things as they are. So for me, the first step is to really get out of the why me phase and to really um, start to tending to what is. Um, and, and when I can tend to what is, then I can respond with most compassionate, um, resonant, uh, appropriate response that is called for. So that might be finding ways to alleviate whatever discomfort is happening through you know, whatever options I have available to me. And sometimes that might include really heavy doses of painkillers for a period of time. Um, Often the first response that uh, comes to me is quite appropriate is just uh, opening my awareness and my kindness to how I'm feeling. Um, So there, there is a quality of allowing and accepting, and I don't mean accepting as in saying that um, I want this pain or this discomfort to continue, but accepting what is and and then acting in whatever ways are appropriate from there. Hmm. I'm curious if you have um, noticed at all any shift in maybe the larger consciousness with regard to chronic pain, with regard to disability, because we have really experienced a huge shift with COVID in terms of the amount of folks who are now living with some kind of um, chronic situation. And I'm just curious if you've felt any um, shifts in awareness that that have come with that. Yes, definitely. And I think that, you know, this, this extends to the non-physical as well, because, you know, we think of the body as just our physical material experience, but of course the body is the, the source point and, um, uh, container for all of our experience. So this idea of discomfort or pain or illness, um, I think does extend to, uh, the expressions of that either in our mental reality or our emotional reality too. And I, I do feel like there's a culture shift around all of those. And part of it is us um, finally um, dislodging and um, really tearing down this idea that we should be uh, pain-free, always active um, machines that you know, experience no disability, no discomfort, um, are always happy and always positive, you know, sort of the, the, the myths of, um, capitalism that, um, posit that there's some sort of ideal way of being that's unachievable for absolutely anyone. Um, but is constantly has been fed to us through media and through culture for centuries now. Um, or at least the past couple of centuries, um, through advertising and through, you know, all all of the cultural products of our our time, and now we're starting to see more uh, nuanced and holistic expressions of what it is to be human. 
and that not to be seen as weak or deficient or um, um, somehow not ideal, but again, allowing and accepting that this is the reality of things. Um, you know, I'm thinking of Megan the Stallion right now and her, what is it? I think it's like even bad bitches have bad days kind of <laughs> work <laughs> that she's, that she's putting out there, um, to acknowledge that mental health is a challenge, um, and particularly for black women, but for all of us and, uh, acknowledging that and naming it and, um, creating around that, um, in this way that is, uh, inclusive and, and joyful and, um, compassionate and um, beautiful really. So that, that extends, uh, to the physical as well. And just our, um, nascent, but growing acknowledgement of the reality of different abilities and, um, different experiences of the body and, and what it means to really honor that. So if we were sort of to take everything that you were sort of just describing as this shift in the broader consciousness and this idea that you touched on of tending to what is, what you're actually experiencing, and then come back to this phrase of coming home to the body, like how would you kind of ground, how do you think about that idea of coming home? to the body, like if you were to kind of distill it down. Yeah. When I think of the word home, you know, it, the, the image that came to me was a hearth, you know, and this idea of, um, shelter and, um, warmth and, uh, rest and care so coming home to the body for me is really coming home to that capacity to provide that for ourselves. And that might be with the support and help of others. Um, for me, it, it almost always is a part of that matrix. Um, so it's not about some idea of like individualistic coming home to the body, but um, my body is in relationship to other bodies and relies on those bodies for, uh, support and care. Um, but it, it, it's also an honoring of that, you know, thinking of a, a fire that's always kept alive. Um, even when it's dim or low that it, it continues to be fed and, um, nurtured so that it can continue to provide the, the warmth and the sustenance for, um, you know, keeping, keeping bodies well, keeping them warm, keeping them fed, keeping them healthy. And that my body is continually doing that. It's keeping that ember alive. And I'm also um, a participant in helping to keep that ember alive within me. Um, so it's a mixture of, you know, gratitude and, uh, and care that, so I, I can be grateful for my body and also provide the care for that to continue. This episode is brought to you by Hover. So I have recently been in the midst of reinventing myself online. I rebranded Hurry Slowly. I redesigned the podcast website. I created a landing page for a new course. And now I'm designing a new personal website and I'm designing another one for my energy healing work. It's a lot. But part of what makes the whole process smoother is using Hover. Because Hover is all about helping you take the first step to get your ideas off the ground, whether it's starting a business, creating a brand, or sharing your gifts with the world. If you have a brand that you've always dreamt of building or a business that you want to take online, the first step is really finding your domain name. And Hover makes it super simple with a clear and straightforward user experience, really easy to use tools, and truly amazing support from friendly humans. It's really never too late to step up to the plate and share what you have to offer. Getting online has helped thousands of people around the world reach new heights with their businesses. And in addition to the classics like .com, you can get extensions like .shop, .tech, and .art, with over 400 more to choose from. You'll be able to find the perfect domain name for your business, one that's memorable, that's relevant, and that boosts your brand. You can buy a domain, set up custom email boxes, and point it to your website in just a few clicks. 
And if you ever run into trouble, help is just a phone call or a chat away. Secure, simple, and reliable. Hover is a trusted and popular choice amongst millions of people launching any kind of brand or business. If you're ready to get your idea off the ground with the perfect domain name, head on over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first Hover purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. I remember when you revealed in your newsletter that you were living with cancer again and you explicitly and very kindly asked well-meaning readers not to send you advice on what to do. And as I was remembering that moment, what it was clarifying for me was that when we are vulnerable and when we are open with people, one of the results is often that we get advice. And that makes sense because we live in this very advice-driven culture. It's like we've all read so many how-to articles at this point that we've sort of adopted some of the elements of that language into our personal interactions. But here's what I'm curious about. What do you think the impulse to give advice does to the person on the receiving end of that advice in terms of how it impacts their own ability to be at home with whatever is unfolding for them, you know, to be able to feel present within their own situation. And I'm not talking expressly about pain here, although we could be, you know, it could also be me saying to someone, I'm going on a three-week solo camping trip and them responding, you know, well, as a woman, you should be really careful. And if I were you, I'd get a knife and a whistle and, you know, fill in the blank. You get the idea. How do you think advice impacts our ability to be at home with whatever's unfolding for us? (sighs) (laughs) This is a big one for me because, um, (laughs) you know, I've learned a lot about this by uh, being on both sides of that equation. So over the years, many, many people um, offering unsolicited advice uh, around my health um, uh, and also being the person who, who did that to others. Um, often, as you said, not around pain or physical things or cancer. I've had many people come to me asking explicitly for advice around cancer, and, and that's a, a different um, reality when we're, we're actually um, you know, asking for explicitly for someone's opinion or, or suggestions. Um, but often I was someone who would uh, give unsolicited advice when someone was going through something difficult emotionally or mentally um, or questioning things about their own life. And um, it's, it's, I feel it now as a real violation. It's it, something I'm really continuing to work on. Um, and, you know, of course it comes from... Um, a certain amount of love, but I, I wouldn't say that it always comes from a good place because for me, what I've noticed is that it often comes from my discomfort of being with someone the way they are, that there is some way in which I am actually judging them and uncomfortable with um, their inability to, you know, be resolved in something that um, honestly triggers me probably because it's not resolved in myself or it's a, it's something that was um, challenging for me in the past and I have been working on a lot. And so I can see clearly what's happening for someone else, but I'm still uncomfortable with it in myself. You know, someone is, um, you know, I, I suffered a lot from real feelings of insecurity and, um, um, you know, just lack of, of confidence or uh, capacity in myself to see my own power, or my, um, my own beauty really in the world. And so when I witness it in someone else, I can, um, you know, try and be encouraging, but really stepping over the line into, um, trying to control, you know, someone, someone else's natural process with that. Um, so for me, I really have to check in with my own discomfort with, with um, what I'm witnessing in someone else. So whether that's physical or emotional pain and uh, really 
develop my capacity to just hold space and be with what I'm witnessing and not try and change it. Um, so, you know, someone else's discomfort, um, can trigger my own discomfort. And, uh, and then I, I, I sort of want to get rid of my discomfort by trying to get rid of their discomfort. Right. But it's, it's really about my capacity. It's not about theirs. You know, if I, if I was really resolved in myself and able to, um, hold space in a, in a more, um, kind of generous way, then I would, I would be able to just be witness. You know, that's what, what therapists do. Right. Um, and, uh, it's, it's very hard to, to do that as a friend, as a family member, um, because there, there's so much being mirrored, um, to us in our relationships. And, um, and sometimes it's because we're fatigued. You know, I, I took a real break from being there for people this past year, you know, and, uh, and had to say no to a lot of relationships that I felt weren't really, um, giving me a lot of, uh, support, the relationships where I was sort of offering, um, I was offering a lot of support, um, sometimes unconsciously by being there for people. And I just didn't have the capacity to do that this past year. So I really limited the amount of, um, contact I had with, with people in general and whittled it down to a very small group of people because I, I knew I would not be capable to just be a witness or to be holding space that I would probably act out in kind of trying to fix or, or change others. So moving a little deeper into our discussion of coming home to the body, I would, <clears throat> I would love to talk about the wisdom of the body, the knowledge that lives in our blood, in our DNA, that is coming to us through our cellular makeup from our ancestors. You know, I think it's no mistake that we use the term family tree to describe our lineage, right? Who we are today is rooted in those who came before us in the past. And I think so much of coming home to the body, of connecting to the wisdom of the body is about starting to trace an understanding of those roots. So I'm curious, how does our connection with or our disconnection from our ancestors impact our ability to be at home in our bodies and in the world, in your opinion? You know, I, I have to speak, of course, only from my own experience. Um, and I think that uh, I, and uh, as a product of this culture, um, I'm, I'm still in a very, uh, you know, sort of beginning understanding of this for myself. Um, but it, it's becoming more and more undeniable that we hold not just the physical um, information in our DNA of our ancestry. So not only what we look like and what um, you know, physical traits we've inherited from the past, but also our mental and emotional makeup is, is at least somewhat influenced by the past. And uh, so, so much of who we are is encoded into us um, by the experience of our ancestors. And for those of us in... Um, the U.S. and uh, more and more, this is true around the world, who have maybe very little connection to our ancestry, you know, sometimes um, almost nothing, and not to speak of those who are adopted or because of certain circumstances um, have even less understanding or knowledge of their ancestors, um, but definitely those of us who are immigrants and cut off from our homelands and um from from unbroken lineages that um, others might have who are indigenous to the place that they come from, um, though that's not always the case, as in the Americas. Um, there's a lot that we've lost in terms of a knowing of uh, rituals and practices and and even information that gets lost about our ancestry. So. Where, where I come from, I was born in Ethiopia, I'm half Ethiopian, half Eritrean. There is a traditional um, 
process by which seven generations are known in a community. And there are actually knowledge keepers who hold on to that information. So they, they know the names and the stories of um, seven generations of people. That's a lot of people so that you know exactly how you're related to people um, all around you. Mm. Um, and, and with that comes their histories and their families and their communities. And so there's this, there's this real knowing of the past and, um, and then that through that, there's a knowing of the self. Um, I thought that it's interesting that, uh, also, uh, Native Americans, indigenous, um, peoples here also have this concept of seven generations. Um, and in fact, biologically, it's in the seventh generation that we lose um, uh, DNA information so that it's in the seventh oh. generation that there's only 1% of information left. Um, so it's really, you know, it's there, there's so much wisdom that comes from um, ancient ways of knowing that are pointing to the truth of our reality. And the truth of our reality is that... Um, you know, this information is passed down and there are ways that it's kept alive through cultural practices that we've since lost. Um, so for me, there's a real uh, curiosity about what has happened to my ancestors that is still impacting me now. You know, I know we both are um, uh, becoming more and more open about our experience with plant medicines. Um, which I've been um, exploring for many years now. And with almost every plant medicine journey, and um, as well as when I do longer, deeper meditation um, retreats, so when I'm in silence for you know weeks to months at a time, I, I get uh, very clear downloads about ancestral experiences. Um, so they come in images and sensory knowing, including smell and um, you know, sensory feeling, uh, not so much sound. Um, and, uh, you know, I've witnessed um, through these experiences that my ancestors went through a lot of trauma, which, you know, is just fact. Um, <laughs> I could have just looked that up, you know, in the history books, but those stories haven't been handed down in my family. Um, but the uh, trauma of um, uh, first internal empire, um, experiences. So the imperialism within Ethiopia that was due to different um, power structures uh, oppressing and, and challenging um, different communities. Um, and then with obviously the, the colonization and attempted colonization of Ethiopia and Eritrea by the Italians and just the amount of violence and, um, and horror that came with that. And so it's been really powerful to begin to understand that, um, both through my own continued exploration of that through other resources, so through books and through stories and um, information that comes from um, literature and history and uh, other forms, but also through my own felt sense experiences of, of what they've been through. And to, to understand that <clears throat> I carry that in my body. And um, I can't draw a direct um, link because uh, that would be impossible. As I was saying before, there's so many causes and conditions to the reasons why we are the way we are and what we're experiencing. But I can't help but wonder if my uh, physical illnesses and um, also mental and emotional challenges in the life in my life aren't directly related to to those traumas. You mentioned this idea of knowing, and I would love to go a little more into ancestral knowing and explore that concept. I think it's a concept that's very hard to comprehend when you come at it from a westernized, individualized, intellectual approach, because in that context, it's like, how could I know something that I don't remember learning? You know, it's as if everything that one knows has to be learned by the individual in this body in the here and now. And if it's not, we don't understand how to situate, you know, how that knowledge would have gotten into us, so to speak. And therefore we don't necessarily trust it. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that. 
Yes, we are living with um, a very uh, powerful legacy of the supremacy of the mind and logic and um, rational ways of understanding that have um, really been the dominant form of knowing for centuries now, um, primarily through um, European intellectual systems um, that you know dominated science and culture uh, really around the world and through colonialism have, have really tried to uh, suppress other ways of knowing. Um, you know, in, in my book, I talk about this as epistemicide, mm -hmm. which is the combining of to, uh, you know, pist as in epistemology or knowing um, and side as in suicide. So the killing of other ways of knowing. So this is a term that um, was created to sort of uh, describe this process of um, really suppressing and sometimes trying to obliterate indigenous ways of knowing. And it, it's, a, it's a process to first understand that this dynamic is happening. Um, so to you know, understand sort of the history and uh, trajectory of um, the domination of the rational and the intellectual, and to start to learn for ourselves and learn to embody other ways of knowing. So we talk about the body and the mind as if they're two separate things. Of course, the brain is in the body, the mind is in the body, and um, there are other cultures, including Asian languages, that don't make that separation as much. Um, uh, and the, the, not to mention the heart, you know. So the, if we think of it as sort of our three centers of knowing: the mind, the heart, and the body, or thoughts, emotions, and sensations. Um, for me, it's been really a process of distinguishing. Um, when I am leaning towards one or the other and um, really, uh, you know, not throwing out the mind. It's not that the mind is bad or thoughts or intellectual ways of understanding, but how do we rebalance and integrate these three together um, to have a more holistic way of knowing that honors that also some of us have more tendency towards one or the other that might be our strengths. And we, we don't want to deny those strengths or say that one is better than the other. Um, but to, to honor that we all have the capacity for all these different ways of knowing. And if we have a strength, especially if we have the strength of the rational in the mind, and that's been overdeveloped because it's been emphasized and encouraged in all of us, regardless of where our true uh, strength lies. And we all probably need to lean towards um, other ways of knowing more. Mm. I agree with that 100%. I want to circle back to what you were just touching into with regard to ancestors and understanding lineage and understanding where we've come from and connecting to that lineage. And maybe you talked about your personal experience, but maybe broadening out a little bit from that, how does that factor in? And I should probably pause to say that you know, part of the reason that I really wanted to go uh, more deeply into this with you is that you teach a class that's called Ancestors and Elements. And so I'm quite conscious that you've, you know, spent some time meditating on this topic. And, you know, for those of us where it's really difficult or not obvious um, how to trace back the lineage, or for those of us who are, let's say, a complete hodgepodge of different inheritances and backgrounds, or for those of us who have ancestors who have done things we would be deeply ashamed of, what is activating the connection to one's ancestors look like in those contexts, do you think? You know, it's, um, first of all, I just want to name how important it is to acknowledge all of this um, because it rarely has been in the past. And um, 
the the work I've done through workshops and um, and offerings and will be developing into a bigger course is actually called Ancestors Two Elements because um, pardon me <laughs> yeah no and it's really I really thought about that you know the 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 kind of minutia of of um, our work you know and and how important language is um, because for me the the goal if we could say there's a goal or my aspiration is really for us to understand um, our interconnection and uh, to really um, honor the differences between us, but to emphasize uh, the lack of separation because that's the corrective that we need. Um, we, we, we don't need to um, encourage more separation. <laughs> we, we need to encourage more honoring of our uniqueness and our individuality and our different cultures and the beauty that we bring into the world, but we actually need to move towards interconnection. So it's towards the elements, um, which to me are a metaphor, you know, we can talk about this too, but, um, a metaphor that describes the, the, the interconnected nature of reality and, um, and if we could recognize that, you know, we would really uh, solve a lot of our, our problems in this world. Um, but the ancestors part is, is a really important stepping point. And that's why it starts there, uh, because so many people are completely disconnected from their roots and understanding where they come from. And for me, this has been very powerful in understanding the nuance of knowing where I come from, but not necessarily going backwards. You know, I can't sort of return to my origins. I'm not moving to Ethiopia anytime soon. Um, I actually am quite disconnected from my cultural heritage and um, language and uh, communities. And uh, it's been a very profound process to be okay with that, to not think it needs to be different uh, and still honor that, that that's where I'm coming from because it has made up as I was describing so much of who I am. It's in, it's literally embodied within me, embedded within me. So a lot of times when I'm doing this work, but honestly, when I do any work, when I start a retreat, I invite people into an acknowledgement of where they come from. And that doesn't matter, you know, if they're adopted or um, have been displaced through migration or immigration or colonization, um, there's still some knowing of, of where we come from. And so a naming of that is really important and not just a naming, but then um, a, a knowing of that. So what, what does that mean? So if you, you know that you were adopted from Korea, what, in what ways are you, um, do, you, do you still feel connected to that culture? You know, maybe it's just through the, the the name that your adopted parents gave you, which 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 points back to that. Or maybe it's knowing one fact about Korea, or it's loving Korean food. Or, uh, but but really, this acknowledgement of ancestry as the the root home of the body, right? Um, that then has been impacted by all these other influences, regardless of who we are, where we've come from, we've been Im impacted by the world in some way beyond our ancestry. But that's the, the root starting point. And I, I use ancestors as a metaphor because um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say every single culture throughout time has had some sort of ancestor veneration or acknowledgement. So whether you're talking about indigenous cultures in the Americas, or you're talking about ancient cultures of Egypt or Greece or um, you know, Celtic cultures or cultures of Asia, every culture, Africa, have um, processes for recognizing um, our ancestors and paying some kind of respect for where we came from. And can you go a little bit then into the elements side of it? So we've just sort of been dipping into the ancestor side of things, but how do elements factor into this discussion, particularly in terms of thinking about this theme of coming home and finding our ground? How do the elements play into that? Yes. And, you know, the elements are another uh, universal metaphor. So again, every culture throughout time and history has had some sort of acknowledgement of the elements as a way to um, 
acknowledge or have a metaphor for the interconnected nature of realities, whether you're talking about Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or, um, again, indigenous uh, communities in Africa, Asia, uh, the Americas, they all talk about the elements in some way. There's acknowledgement of from anywhere from four to six elements. Um, I talk about four, earth, water, fire, and air. And the, these are a metaphor for the fact that regardless of the form that reality takes, that it can sort of be boiled down to um, these, these parts that acknowledge that we're all made of the same substance. And, you know, so the ancients acknowledge this, also modern science now acknowledges this, that we all came from the same exact point and we are literally stardust and we've just taken consciousness has taken different forms of reality in terms of what we term in inanimate objects um and uh you know other things in nature and then what we acknowledge as living beings um but it's all the same stuff so this uh these two metaphors ancestors and elements for me really point to that paradox of reality so we are these individual living breathing conscious quote-unquote beings who can acknowledge where we came from that we have certain histories and trajectories we have these identities we have these beautiful things that we can bring into the world we also have our difficulties and challenges and yet you know we are the same as a rock when we boil down to um, the, the substances of reality on the most minute level so exploring this idea that we are you know, undeniably, absolutely a part of the elements, a part of the natural world. I feel like there's a sense in the dominant culture that we are very separate from nature, that I'm over here and that nature is something that I might go visit sometimes, you know, maybe like right now when it's autumn and the leaves are turning all kinds of colors and I drive a few hours to go on some hikes you know, and then I return to my world, maybe in the suburbs, maybe in the city where I'm sort of not in nature. And even the way that we use the word nature in the English language, the way that I think I'm using it right now sort of separates it from me. We don't understand nature to be all around us every minute, like air, for instance, which of course is part of nature. You know, you already mentioned you live in Brooklyn, you live in the city. How do you reconcile that you are of nature on a sort of practical level in a daily way. Yeah, I think that's the really the operative word of um, like that, that are or that being like we are nature, as you are pointing to, you know, we sort of think of it as outside of us or upstate, um, you know, hours away, but not only is it all around me here in Brooklyn, um, but it, it's within me. And so the elements I think are, are such a powerful metaphor because they're can be experienced internally. There's a classical um, Buddhist mindfulness meditation um, that actually has one acknowledge the elements as part of oneself um, while also acknowledging them as external. And it kind of goes back and forth between this internal and external and, and, um, and a recognition of the simultaneous that it's simultaneous, um, <laughs> that, that we are both um, able to acknowledge this internally and externally and also at the same time. Um, and so there, there can be really simple practices for that, you know, a formal meditation, yes, but also just when we turn on the faucet, you know, that's water, that's the water element. Or when we experience uh, drinking water, we're taking water into our bodies and it's mixing with the, the water, which is most of what we are and what most of what the world is. That's why the saying water is life is so profound. Um, it's an acknowledgement of that. Uh, when I turn on the stove to cook something, that's the fire element. When I, um, you know, uh, open the window and feel a breeze, that's the air element. And, and all the objects around me that feel solid are the earth element. And so we, we can be in constant relationship to this, this metaphor in a way that um, is, is really honoring. So in the same way that we can kind of honor the ancestors within our own bodies, we can honor these elements within and around us all the time. Mm. 
As you know, I moved upstate um, a few years ago and being here, I have um, the good fortune of having wood stove in my house. And it's been kind of remarkable to me how much pure joy and comfort I get from making a fire almost every day Mm -hmm. in the winter. Mm -hmm. What you're saying is resonating so much um, for me and just thinking about that and really getting to experience and honoring that connection. And I'm lucky to be able to do it in this like very literal way uh, is, is incredibly sustaining. Yes. And, you know, such a visceral experience of a balancing of the elements, um, which are wildly out of balance on the planet right now. Hmm. Um, And so wildfires and floods and um, more to come in terms of these extreme weather changes and how our own imbalances can be manifest in different ways, you know, and we can see the, the, the expression of um, too much fire energy and kind Mm. of the the rage and um, not that any of these elements are bad (laughs) Um, and, and rage can be quite powerful and useful. Um, as a catalyst, but when things are out of balance in us, you know, I tend to be very watery and I've spent a lot of my uh, work in self-transformation and balancing that water element Um, and grounding with the earth element. Um, I was a very, very uh, melancholy, moody young person and kind of unable to, um, usefully process all of that water, all the tears and the emotion from all of the pain that I experienced um, growing up and finding ways and processes to, to, to balance that out. I'm working now a lot on my fire because that's something that, um, you know, is definitely needed to put our work out in the world and to be in fact impactful. And and so what, what kind of things help me with um, stoking my own fire and really uh, bringing that element into balance within myself so that I can be effective and um, uh, have a positive impact. Mm, Yeah. I like that reflecting it in terms of the inner and the outer sort of seeing how it um, moves outward and seeing it reflected in all of the quite serious climate changes that we're facing right Mm. now. Mm. I want to switch gears a little bit right before we wrap up and kind of come back a little bit to where we started. So the last time that we sat down together for this podcast was the summer of 2020, Mm. very challenging time. (laughs) It was just as your book, You Belong, A Call for Connection was coming out. Um, That is a deeply beautiful and moving book that I would recommend to anyone listening. And I will link to that interview in the show notes. And in the landscape of your life, it's pretty clear that belonging has been a topic that you return to again and again. And I'm wondering now, since You Belong was published, how is your understanding of belonging continued to change or evolve? What feels like new territory at the moment vis-a-vis belonging? You know, I know that you know this as someone who puts work out in the world, including books, that um, I wouldn't write the same book now, (laughs) right? Um, And it's not because I disagree with anything. I mean, maybe a word here or there I would change, but um, uh, I, I still can stand behind everything I put out there in terms of the themes of the book. And I... I think now would deepen even more fully into my belief that we are going through a huge transformation. Um, You know, newsflash everyone um, (laughs) collectively and to, to really emphasize this shift in consciousness that we're undergoing and how profound it is. You know, we can sort of go on in our daily lives with our the minutia of just being a person in the world, um, and sort of miss the 
the profundity of, of what's really happening. And for me, then the importance of continuing to point to our need to come together, um, especially with all of the division and polarization and separation that's happening around the world. Uh, you know, even in Ethiopia right now, there's been a, a really horrific war that's been going on for two years now um, that is affecting millions of people um, and has been just uh, very, very traumatic um, for people there, of course, but also for the diaspora community and the divisions that it's sowing. And this is true of many, many countries and communities. There are so many conflicts, not just Ukraine, happening in the world right now. And so I think for me, since that time, the, the theme of belonging and um, how imperative it is for us to understand that in order to be able to move forward um, in some kind of unity for the sake of our planet and for the sake of um, healing from what feels like really outmoded behaviors of war and conflict. Um, yeah, I would, I would just, I think I would like double down on some of the, the, what I was calling for. And that, that book was really um, very personal process, you know, asking people to, to look at their own patterns and using mindfulness as a framework for um, inviting people into a, a very systematic process for understanding their belonging. I think now I would want to kind of emphasize why that's so important collectively and uh, how imperative it is for us to do that work for our collective well-being, not just our individual well-being. Mm, absolutely. So I'd like to come kind of full circle to where we started and maybe also ask you to be a little more explicit about a connection you were just making, which is I'm curious what you think specifically about the relationship between belonging and transformation. In my own life, and let's say on like a personal level, I feel like there is maybe somewhat of a tension between the two. Like I'm always wanting to transform and reinvent myself. And in order to do that, I make the choice to leave places or to leave people behind. But I'm not sure that those things need to be intention. And I think you were describing a completely alternative path where perhaps there's a more positive relationship. So how do you see it? How do you see that relationship between belonging and transformation? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I was sort of pointing to our need for collective transformation, but I, I still do believe um, it's not that I would write a different book. That would be step one is that mm -hmm. personal transformation because when we work on our own belonging and um, start to resolve our internal feelings of feeling separate from different parts of ourselves, feeling disconnected from everything from our ancestry to our the elements within us, I think that that does lead to co collective transformation, not automatically, but we are um, we can't do it the other way around. You know, I, I love that bell hooks quote, if you're fucked up and you lead the revolution, you're going to have a fucked up revolution. So we, we, we have to do that inner work of transformation. And that includes work on belonging, which to me is, you know, a larger metaphor for um, resolving those feelings of separation within ourselves um, so that we recognize our interconnection with others. For me, that's the only way transformation can happen is in that order. Hmm. I very much agree. If you were to leave the folks listening with one question to reflect on with relation to the concept of home or the idea of coming home, what would that question be? Hmm. And you feel free to take a moment to reflect. Mm -hmm. No, I, I've been really um, working with the heart energy lately um, and recognizing that as a very profound frequency to open up to the 
to open the heart, basically, you know, to, to really um, move through the world with an undefended heart. And, and I've said that undefended is not the same as unprotected, right? But really to not um, come into the world with our pattern behaviors of protection that, um, you know, are really about uh, keeping ourselves separate because we've been hurt in the past and we don't want to feel pain or hurt again. So I think a question around that is that I'm, I've, I've been working with, um, though I didn't phrase it consciously in this way, but I, I would now is, um, am I at home in my heart? Hmm. You know, am I at my home in my own heart? Because I often look for home outside of myself or have in the past. And so coming into my own heart and, and feeling at home allows me to move through the world with that open-heartedness. I really resonate with Sabine's final question. And I have to say that the power of it has been borne out in my own energy practice. I have found that some of the deepest work happens when I invite folks in to explore the heart space and to imagine feeling at home there. Am I at home in my heart? What a great question to rest with. As I said at the top, you can find Sebene and subscribe to her marvelous Moon Cycle newsletter at sebenesalasi.com. And you can find her on Instagram at sebenesalasi. I've learned so much from being in conversation with her. If this episode moved you, you can leave us a review on iTunes or make a donation at hurryslowly.co slash donation. If you want to stay in the loop about new episodes and my other offerings, courses, energy work, etc., you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for our lovely theme song and some additional audio love. As always, thank you to you for listening and remember to hurry slowly. <laughs>